Today's episode is sponsored by World Breakers, Advent of the Kennet, a two-player card game set in alternate 13th century Asia. You are a world breaker, an individual who can harness the mysterious substance Mythium to magnify your natural talents. Over the course of the game, you will recruit followers to control the board and develop locations to gain power. Reach 10 power to win the game, forever reshaping history. The game box includes multiple game modes such as pre-constructed decks, drafting, and a solo campaign. So be sure to check out World Breakers on Kickstarter right now. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about multiplication. We're talking about how to multiply yourself, how to multiply your efforts so you can get more done while spending less energy, while spending less effort. And we're talking to Carla Kopp from Weird Giraffe Games. Carla, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be back. Yeah, really glad to have you back. You're one of my absolute favorite people in the industry. You've got a company that you put out some really interesting games, different themes than the typical, you know, fantasy or zombies or something like that. And so I'm a big fan of your work. And it's just been fun to kind of see your company grow over the last several years. And and we've been able to hang out a couple of times at conventions and things like that. And so I'm just really glad to have you back on the show and to talk about a topic that I feel like you and I both have have had to figure out. It's not something we fell into. It's like, okay, if we don't figure these things out, we're going to lose it. We're not going to be able to do this (laughs) long term. We had to figure out how to, you know, Stop spending so much effort, so much bandwidth on things that were maybe frustrating or challenging and and instead figure out ways to multiply ourselves through hiring other people and all sorts of other ways. So I'm excited to dive in to that. But before we get into the topic, remind people who you are, how you got into game design, got into publishing, all that kind of thing. Okay, so I am Carla Kopp. I own Weird Draft Games, Galactic Raptor Games. I write a weekly blog at weirddraftgames.com slash Carla um, about board game design and publishing and everything in between. Um, I design games and I also contract uh, out um, usually for solo designs and game development. Um, I got into game design because, well, I walked into a panel about game design and then I made a game and then I went on the internet and it told me to make a company and you know, I just made a giant task list and did it all until I figured out that there's other ways to get into uh, board games. Um, but by then I was just like in love with the community and design and publishing and all of it. So, you know, eventually I made another company and, you know, I, um, at the time I was a software engineer and eventually I got to the point where I just went full in game design. And now this is what I do all day, every day. Yeah. Very cool. And so before we get into the topic, I'm I'm curious, what made you want to design and publish games with such interesting themes? You've got uh, a game about music on the streets of new Orleans. Like you've got these really interesting themes. So what draws you towards those? Well, so I always like things that are different. Like I wanted to publish games because I don't want to like do the thing that everyone does. Like I want um, the games to be like just something unique. Like if you go to Weird Giraffe Games, you're going to get something different and weird. And it will take a moment to be like, oh, okay, I guess this is what it is. But then like when you actually get to it, like you really, really love it. So um, yeah, like for um, Big Easy Busking, I want people that, you know, love New Orleans or busking um, to be able to play and like really, really feel the theme and like feel like they're busking in New Orleans because that's like a like if you ever go to New Orleans, that's a big thing. Um, but like you don't see other games about busking or, you know, really about New Orleans either. So, um, yeah, like I don't go out there to make games that you know everyone will love um or even like but like a small community is really going to like passionately love them yeah and it's really cool to see the niche uh, of community of of an audience that you've been able to to carve out and people know that when you have a game coming to kickstarter it's going to be interesting it's going to have an interesting theme maybe something a little bit off the beaten path 
And so I'm just really uh, glad to see when your games come out. It's like, oh, what, what theme is it going to be this time? Because it's probably going to be different than uh, all the other games on Kickstarter that are $100 and have like 75 miniatures. And so, uh, yeah, really, really excited to see what you got coming up uh, in the future. I know you got a Cats game. And so uh, we'll talk about that maybe in, in a little while as part of this uh, this conversation. I think that might be a good case study since that is your most recent game as kind of like your journey of what you've learned over the years of, okay, I used to do it this way and here's what was good and bad about that all the way to now. I've got a game coming out and this is what I'm doing differently. I think that'd be a really cool way to kind of frame the conversation. But um, before we get into like the deeper stuff, let's talk about like, why is this important? Why is this a conversation that we're having on this podcast, right? Why, why is it worth our time? Why is it something that designers and publisher, publishers should be thinking about as far as their day-to-day, as far as things that they're working on? Why is this a big deal? So, well, you just want to spend your life doing the things that you like. And when you talk about publishing, publishing is, you know, 30 different hats and tasks and things. And one, you're not going to like all the different things that it goes with, but you're also not going to be good at it. You're not going to be good at every single part of publishing. Um, and I think that's just a fact. Um, so like, if you want to do it well, you're going to have to get some help in a variety of ways. And most people also like to sleep. Um, they like to have like a other life outside of, um, you know, even if, their life is board games. They like to, you know, play them um, and not constantly be answering email and doing things like that. Um, so it's really about focusing on what you are good at, what you're um, really enjoy and, you know, to really love life. Yeah, for sure. And this is definitely something in my experience that success makes all this stuff so much harder. And so much worse because as you have success on, maybe you've got a game that went to Kickstarter and you made $50,000, $100,000. Okay, well, now you've got that project. But then more than likely, now you have opportunities for more projects and then those do well. And then it's like it's an exponential growth. And that also means exponential growth in email you have to send out, exponential growth in customer service issues you're going to deal with, exponential growth in shipping and fulfillment and designers pitching you games. Like everything stems off of that. And it's usually from success. Like if you go to Kickstarter and you have a huge failure, well, you're not going to have as many opportunities next time. Like you have to, you know, start over from scratch a lot of times. And so this is something that I feel like a lot of people kind of, they find themselves overwhelmed because of doing reasonably well. Or sometimes, you know, you go to Kickstarter and you accidentally make half a million dollars on a campaign you thought was going to make 20 grand. And now all of your, uh, your bandwidth is going to get eaten up. And so this is something I feel like a lot of designers and publishers should be thinking about early as opposed to finding themselves in a situation that I found myself in. I'm curious about if you found yourself, but I know a lot of people where you kind of get in the middle and you go, oh, shoot, I have got to totally redo my schedule. I have to rethink what I'm doing because I am exhausted. I am overwhelmed. I'm not getting sleep. I'm not eating. I'm not doing all the things I need to be doing. And so let me figure out a different way to do this. But a lot of times we, you find yourself in the pit and then you're like, oh, shoot, let me figure this out. And it probably would have been a little bit better had you had some foresight to not fall into the pit in the first place. And so I think that's uh, some definitely some things I want to chat about here today. And so let's uh, let's talk about maybe your early goings, your early you know designing and publishing and things like that. What were some of the challenges you ran into that were kind of part of this conversation? Maybe some of the things that all of a sudden were overwhelming, all of a sudden you were dealing with, and it was like, oh man, this is not fun. This is not what I signed up for. What were some of those things? So one of the things is that a project is never really done. Like people think like, oh yeah, you completed that game. It got manufactured. You did it. What's the next thing? And there is a next thing, as you say, but like, um, what do you do with the extra copies? Well, you have to get the game into distribution. You have to contact retailers. Um, you have to do all the missing parts and, you know, just go to BGG every day, just in case there's a random question. Um, and even if like, say that you sell out, okay, great. You sold out. Now what? Are you going to do a reprint? Well, how many copies are you going to do for the reprint? Are you going to do an expansion with the reprint so that you can sell like additional games and get people hyped up again? Um, the real thing is, is that a project is never done. Um, you either were successful and have to decide if you're going to be more successful or you have games left over and you're like, well, I have to get these games sold and what am I going to do? Um, at the same time that you're also starting a new project. So if you ever want to, you know, keep making new projects, you have to, you know, either learn how to um, 
be super productive or get help along the way, or you're just going to be bogged down by all the customer service and um, just keeping up with all the previous projects. Yeah, no doubt. One of the things I ran into, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, I was just so overwhelmed by how many customer service emails were coming through in a day. And it wasn't honestly that many, but it was on top of everything else I had to do anyway. Right. So even if it's only like two or three emails a day, well, that's two or three engagements, two or three messages I have to think through, I have to read, I have to go, okay, what's the issue? Okay, let me go figure out what the problem is. Why, you know, didn't the, the game get to them? Did they submit their address? Let me go to the pledge match. Like there were so many steps in the process for that two or three extra things on top of the 50 other things I had to do. And so I, I ended up hiring a guy to help me with customer service for one to take that off my plate and to have somebody else, their bandwidth to be used for those things. But two, because I had so many things to do, I had a tendency to send people emails that came across uh, maybe a little harsher than I meant for them to be. Like I was just like trying to answer their, their question, right? Uh, here, here's, your, here's your solution. You know, thanks, Gabe. But it came across maybe as being a little bit short with people or being kind of like grumpy or something like that. And so that would sometimes cause more issues as I'd get an angry email back. It's like, I can't believe you talked to me that way. It's like, what? What? I'm sorry. What? I'm just telling you, submit your address to the pledge manager. That's all I was saying. But OK, I should have said, hello, I hope you're having a lovely day and that the weather outside your door is excellent. And your kids are all in school and doing great and making good grades. <laughs> but that wasn't what I was. I didn't have the bandwidth. And so hiring somebody who was much more cordial, who figured out some ways to say things to people, even if it was like, you know, negative information, say it in a nice, kind way. And so there's all like all sorts of things that go into this, not just like multiplying your efforts, but also like multiplying your efforts in a way that like maximizes all these things. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, so one thing I recommend is um, making like like a process. Like I use Freshdesk for all my help desk tickets. Um, so I can go in there and I can look at all the tickets, but it, I can like get somebody else to also go in there and look at all the tickets. And also it's like separated from the rest of everything. Um, like at one time I just used one email for all of the things. So a lot of the time was just spent like, oh, okay, what's the next email? Like all that context switching, which just takes up so much brain power and time. Um, if you can just do everything like that's all the same at the same time, um, that saves so much effort. And um, I also hired somebody uh, to do the customer service and I would recommend it for like every company Um, Like, even if you don't hire somebody to help with customer service, um, like if you find another small company and you just swap customer services, like you do the work for them and they do the work for you, um, because it's just like getting these responses from people that are angry about the thing that you made, this thing that you put your heart and soul into, and they just, you know, are saying all these terrible things about it you know, it, it tends to make it so that you get emotional or you're not as cordial as you would be if you had nothing to do with the product. Um, so it just helps out a ton just to get somebody to do the customer service. Um, like what I do is I have, um, uh, her name's Beth. She goes through all the customer service tickets and she makes a big task list for me. Um, and at the end of the week, I just go through the task list and I do all the things that are all the same at the same time. So what used to take me like a couple hours a day takes me like an hour at the end of the week because I'm doing all the same things and I don't have to check anything and I just do it. Like I send out all the mail at the same time. Um, I do all the missing bits at the same time. Um, and it just works out so much better. And then um, another thing I do is um, in my Discord, I have like this hidden channel where all the nice things that get said get put into this nice channel um, so that I can go back and I can see all the quotes from all the people that were like super happy and excited. But I don't have to see any of the like actual comments from people that said bad things or were angry. Like they get passed to me in a way that doesn't, you know, make me demotivated. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And this is actually something I also ran into and had to learn along the way is like, it's doing things in batches like you're talking about and figuring out, okay, here are the days and the times that I do these things because my issue was not time management. My issue was bandwidth. 
because I would get to a place where I was like, I have the time, but I am exhausted. Like my brain is just dead. And so I'm going to not do anything but watch random YouTube videos for a while. I'm going to use my time not particularly productively because I am just spent. And so once I started doing things in batches and to say, okay, here, and even like scheduling it out and not necessarily doing it every Tuesday, but at least, you know, some things are like that. I like, I like that you have, you know, I'm going to send out uh, the mail on this day and, and also just letting people know, Hey, I ship out um, spare parts. Like if you're missing a part, I ship those out on Thursday afternoons. And so if you send me a message on Friday morning, just realize that it's not going to get shipped out until next Thursday afternoon, because that's when all the parts go out. And that's when I go to the post office, something like that. And just let the customers know. And then they have, you know, expectation that way they're not sending you an email four days later. It's like, Hey, have you sent my thing? Like, well, well, no. And that's another email, another, you know, a little thing of bandwidth off of your brain. And, and so, you know, just protecting your bandwidth is so vital in, in this whole experience of designing games and, and publishing. And so along those same lines, let's, let's talk about designing. Cause I know you've been working with co-designers. I know you've been doing solo modes and also hiring out, you know, different aspects of design. So let's talk about that. Tell me about some of the things that you've done to kind of uh, multiply your efforts from a design standpoint, you know, what you've learned, what's working, all that. So I love co-designing. I actually um, hadn't had a good co-design until about two years ago, I feel like. Um, but once I experienced like a really good co-designing relationship, I never want to go back to solo design, basically. Um, a good co-designer will be there to help, you know, motivate you. Um, they'll be able to, you know, make choices. Like if you're just like, well, we could go this way or that way. And I like them both equally. Like in the past, I would just like stare at the problem or go take a walk or, you know, do something that wastes a bunch of time. And now I just go to my co-designer and go like, which way is better? And even if they say like, oh, well, uh, not A or B, let's do option C. That's this new brand new thing. Um, like then we do that thing and it's, the design is much better for it just because there's somebody else that can, you know, give feedback and also play test. Um, having somebody else that has their own play test group or just being able to play test with the co-designer. Um, like one of the games um, I designed over the pandemic, um, I had two other co-designers so we could play test the two and three player game like great. We just needed at least some of the co-designers and even a four player one. We just needed one additional play tester so we could play test all the different player counts super easy um, and just make so much uh, progress on the game because, you know, um, also there's another person. So they are theoretically doing half the work. Um, if you get a good co-designing relationship, they usually do the half that you don't want to do and you're doing the half that they don't want to do. Um, so everyone is so happy and just the excitement makes everything just so much better. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things I also love about working with other people on these projects is the accountability. It's I don't want to let that other person down. If I told them I was going to have a prototype ready by Thursday so that Thursday night we could play test it, then I want to make sure I get that done as opposed to going, ah, you know, I'm, I'm a little tired. I got some stuff going on. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, I'm only letting myself down versus letting somebody else down. And just that heightened uh, accountability is so excellent. And just creating those deadlines, creating those those moments where you're like, OK, I got to get this done because somebody else is counting on me. And something I've learned to kind of basically try to set myself up for these things and like put myself in a situation where I become the bottleneck because I hate being the bottleneck. I hate being the person that other folks are waiting on, whether it's artists or graphic designers or rule book editors or whoever. And so putting myself in a situation where I am held accountable because I don't want to be the bottleneck. I don't want someone else waiting on me has been super helpful in multiplying my efforts because it gives me that extra motivation when I might not have it. Have you found that to also be the case with working with co-designers and whatnot? Oh, definitely. Um, especially that bottleneck thing where like, I never want anyone to wait on me. So if I know anybody that I'm working with, like doesn't have things to do. Like I am so motivated just to like make a list of like five or 10 things for them to do and then go on to the next person and the next person. So even if like I spend a whole day just giving task lists to people, that could mean like I told 10 people things to do. And instead of doing like getting the work done of one person, I got the work done of 10 people, um, which is so great. Um, and the same thing with the accountability. Like if I have a regular meeting, like I will not 
like work on my own projects like I'm per- perfectly okay like letting myself down and being like hey Carla I know we said that we we're gonna do like the design but we have to do emails today because that's you know the not fun thing um but with another co-designer it's like well we have a meeting we have to be ready for the meeting so you know I can't you know let them down um it's just so much of a better experience than uh designing alone well if you get the right person you have to get the right person or people um and it really works out fantastically yeah for sure what would be your advice to someone who is looking right what would be some of the like qualifications what are, what are some of the things that like you look for in finding the right people to co-design with to work with what are some of those kind of like prerequisites so i've co-designed with a good number of people maybe 10 people at this point um and it really depends on the project um you want to look at the project and look at what you bring to the project and what you don't bring to the project. Um, for instance, I once was making a trivia game and uh, I tend not to do light um, party games um, or anything with trivia. So I went to go find somebody that was good at party and trivia games and somebody that, you know, I knew that, you know, we had some sort of rapport with um, and, you know, that's also looking to co-design. Um, whenever I approach a co-designer, I make sure to tell them why I'm approaching them. Um, and it's always good to have like lots of compliments and stuff like that. Um, but being like really open and honest about, Hey, like, let's do this thing. I'm super excited about it. And I think you'll do great. Like helping me, like, like I will do this part. I'm like all the spreadsheets and most of my co-designing relationship. Um, so I'll tell them like, Hey, I'll do all the math. I'll do all the spreadsheets. I'll make the prototypes. Um, but if you want the prototypes to look good, you have to do the graphic design and you have to do all these other things like, um, being upfront with, you know, what you're good at, what you think they're good at and what kind of responsibilities and such, um, and how that will work. Um, is always something that I suggest because if you go into the relationship and you don't know these things or like you have different ideas on how much work each person will do, um, those tend not to last all that long. Yeah. It actually reminds me of the original Rocky movie and someone asked Rocky Balboa, they said, well, why do you love Adrian? And he said, gaps. And the person's like, what do you, what do you mean gaps? And he goes, she fills my gaps. You know, and, and I think that's super smart advice as far as relationships and spouses and stuff like that, but also in co-designing and also working together. It's like you find someone who fills the gaps. And of all the co-design teams that I've interviewed over the years for this podcast, the ones that do the best, you can tell that they come uh, at, at game design, they come at things from a different angle. You know, one person is really good with mechanisms. The other person's really good with theme. One person's really good with numbers. The other person's really good with narrative. One person's a little more introverted. The other person's a little more extroverted. Like you see these people that kind of fit together like cogs in a machine. And that's why it works so well because they fill each other's gaps. And so, yeah, that'd be my advice as well. Just find someone who fills your gaps or, you know, find a team that everybody kind of comes together. They're doing different things. They're good at different things. And uh, it works out uh, really, really well. I would recommend um, to make sure you do have something in common with them. Like either you have like, you like the same kind of games, you like to design the same sorts of games. Like, and when I say that, I mean like, um, if you're going for a light game, you should not get somebody that is like great at making heavy games. Um, like there should be something in common based on the game as well. Um, so that they're all, they can also be passionate about it because if they're not passionate about this, um, co-design, then the co-design won't go anywhere. Um, they need to be able to actually participate in the design and, you know, feel like it's, it's part of theirs as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let's switch gears over to uh, marketing and community building and social media and things along that along those lines. What have been some things that you've learned as far as maybe hiring people or maybe scheduling and, and things like that to kind of multiply your efforts online, you know, bringing in more customers, bringing in more Kickstarter backers? What are some of those things? Um, so for marketing and uh, social media and things like that, I highly recommend getting like some sort of tools so that you could either... Um, get all your posts ready at the same time. Like, as we said, all that batching things together. So you don't have to go and do an Instagram thing every single day, um, or getting somebody to help you do that. Um, 
or like using some sort of script. Like um, I have a Twitter script that grabs a random tweet in a giant spreadsheet and it'll tweet it at some sort of hourly thing. Like maybe every 18 hours, it'll just tweet um, one of the random tweets that I have in the spreadsheet. Um, but like getting some sort of tools um, later is great for Instagram. Um, there used to be tweet deck for Twitter. Um, but there's like Hootsuite, there's like tons of different things that you can use that will help um, just scheduling all your social media and marketing and stuff like that um, so that you don't have to focus on it every single day. Um, but yeah, when you're ready to get a social um, social media person or a marketing person, um, I highly recommend that to be like a place to start off um, if you're like first hiring somebody just because that is kind of an area that people know like they don't have to be in board games to know how to do social media um you can find social media people um that know what they're doing um that you don't have to train all that much um so yeah uh that's uh usually uh a place that i i love to have somebody doing the work because i also don't like, uh, I go on and off about whether I like certain social medias and whether I don't. So, like, I don't get stressed out when I force myself to do, like, Twitter or something when I don't have to. Yeah, for sure. Something that super just saved me so much time and headache and bandwidth was, like you're saying, scheduling. It's going in on Sunday night and scheduling all the posts for the week and knowing that they're done and not having to rely on my memory on a Wednesday or a Friday morning or whatever. And, Oh, my kid was sick and Oh, I didn't think about it. Now I'm five hours late. And then I normally post this thing and, you know, and just schedule it all and do it all at the same time, be done with it. Uh, but then also, like you're saying, hiring people that maybe have a better skill set. So I've hired out all my uh, game, like crowdfunding campaign marketing. You know, I am not the, the whiz when it comes to Facebook ads or when it comes to email marketing or things like that. And so I found people who are and just pay them. Now, all of these things are going to take away from your bottom line. I think that's something we need to make clear. Like you are cutting down your overall profits, but in theory, if you're doing it correctly, you're doing it efficiently, you're going to be able to do more. And so there's a bigger pie that then, you know, the profit loss for all these things, it, it, it makes sense. Like you're, you're going to be able to make more money overall, do more projects overall and have a better life overall, which you know, get more sleep and eat more good meals and, and spend time with your family and friends. And so I, I think that's something just to kind of be aware of. It's, it's a give and take. Like you don't want to hire out so many people that it bankrupt your, bankrupts your company. So you, you got to have to find that like balance in between. What would be your advice actually for that? As far as like, how do you know when to hire somebody out? How do you, how do you know when to like find someone to help out with social media or help out with, with you know, any of these things to multiply your efforts? Um, whenever you like can realize that you're not good at the thing, um, like even like before your first Kickstarter campaign, like if you are not good at voice acting, like get a voice actor to do your um, first video or photography, like some things need to be done like really well. And they also don't cost that much. Um, so like with photography, like I, I can set up a game okay and I can do some Photoshop, but just getting somebody else to take all the pictures is going to sell the game way better than anything I could do. And it will save me like a day's worth of effort. So I will definitely always get a photographer to take all the pictures because they're just good at what they do. Um, but whenever it's starting to get to the point where you get stressed out, um, that's also another time where I'm like, oh, okay, just thinking about doing this task is stressing me out. Um, and I'm procrastinating, so I should get somebody else to try to help out with it so that I don't procrastinate and waste even more time. Um, and that's what happened with social media where like I would have my, you know, day where I would go and do all of it, but I'd procrastinate and it would take forever to do. So, you know, just getting somebody else to do it would save me hours and hours that I could do something else with. And in that time, like, uh, be able to make enough money to to pay for that person to do the thing. Right. One one thing that I started off at first was just finding freelancers that that uh, charge by the hour, and that you know instead of going out and saying okay I'm going to hire a, a full time employee and have to deal with all the paperwork and all the insurance and all the extra stuff for the government, it's like no, let's just start off. I think this is like you know eight hours a week, maybe twenty hours a month, whatever it is, and finding someone who works on those 
uh, at that rate. You know, they're a freelancer. They work with lots of different companies doing lots of different projects and things like that. And just let's just see how it goes. And maybe it's not worth the money. Like maybe you thought it was going to take this amount of time or whatever, but it doesn't. But it, again, it, it gives you kind of that uh, flexibility to say, okay, this is really good. Or maybe I want to do it differently. Maybe I need more. Maybe I do need a full-time person. But I guess, you know, what I'm saying is start slow, start small. Maybe with a freelancer, figure it out and go from there. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would definitely never start full-time. Like even though I've been running a company for like six years, I have no full-time employees except for myself. Um, whenever you're starting off with anyone, like start maybe five hours a week and see like how much you get from five hours a week. Or if you have no idea, like you've never hired anyone before, uh, ask them to like work for one hour and see like what kind of output you get in one hour. Um, but yeah, definitely don't hire anyone full time until you've worked with that person, hopefully on an hourly basis, um, for a number of weeks. Um, just because, you know, Full-time employees require a lot of paperwork and things to do. Um, in the U.S., um, you have to start doing paperwork once you pay them $600 if they're also a U.S. employee or they're also a U.S. citizen. Um, but you can hire people from outside the U.S. Um, and that is less paperwork um, if you want to go down that path um, as well. But um, yes, anyone that you pay like a certain amount will start requiring you to learn more about the tax code and forms. And that's more things for you to do. Um, so, yeah, like start off very small with a small number of tasks. And um, as you go, like teach them more and more. Um, one of the things that I didn't expect when all this started was um, I thought I could just hire someone. And then, you know, immediately I would just have free time. Um, but you have to start small and like teach them how you want things done and what exactly you want because, well, English is hard sometimes. So even though like you say what you want and they say that they can do the thing that you want, there's normally some difference in there that you're going to have to work out like either by, um, particulars like oh you wanted the instagram photos to be like this or you know you wanted links or you know whatever the particulars are as they um, start learning and asking questions um and i always have like a knowledge base um for each person where like i write down what i want um and all the details like and give examples like always have lots of examples um so that they can go back and actually refer to something um instead of just like having a voice meeting with them and then they just have to memorize everything you say or take really good notes or something like that. Um, but yeah, like definitely have a way for them to look up things and uh, be really open to questions because you will get lots of questions. Hopefully um, if somebody's not asking any questions, that doesn't mean that they know exactly what they're doing it could mean that they're just going to guess and do it wrong or wait till you point out that they're doing it wrong. Um, so yeah, it's going to take time and effort to uh, get somebody like um, all working and taking um, the task away from you. So definitely don't do like more than one person at a time. If you don't have like the bandwidth to take care of and, uh, instruct more than one person at a time while you're also doing all the rest of the things. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Going back to the 600 hour thing, that's something I ran into a while back and it's like, oh shoot, uh, things have changed because I just hit 600. Uh, can I negotiate down to 599? You know, <laughs> something like that and think it through because now you're going to have to have W9 forms and you got to go through more effort with uh, with the government, the IRS and things like that. Now, again, this is all in the US. I have no idea about Canada or the EU or anywhere else, but in the US, you definitely want to be aware of those thresholds as far as freelancers. But yeah, going back to what you're saying, as far as processes, it's one of those things like you can either just do it yourself, you know, or develop a process that is going to take more effort and more time and a little more money on the front end. But overall, in the long run, it's going to make a lot more sense. And so anything that is going to be done over and over again, it needs to be done weekly or monthly or yearly, or you're going to have you know to do it multiple times, then it's probably worth the extra time and upfront investment to do it because it's going to save you time and energy and bandwidth and money over the long haul. And so figuring, you know, figuring out what are those things, what are those processes I can create, this thing going to save, you know, and put the time in on the front end and then save the time on the back end. 
continue talking about publishing and, and other things. What are some of the things that your publishing company now hires out that you go to other people to get done to kind of multiply and maximize your effort? Well, other than um, the customer service and social media, um, I also have somebody help with conventions. Um, I have a booth manager um, and they like help with all the booth helpers. Um, they get, they actually stay at the booth um, for most of the um, convention time. So then I can go out and like do interviews or meet with people or do whatever I need to do while I'm also at the convention, because, you know, there's all these people there that, um, you know, need to be talked to like distribution and reviewers and, you know, it's nonstop at conventions. And then also if anything like goes on fire, there's both me and the booth manager to deal with it instead of just like me dealing with it all, like on top of, you know, there's a booth full of people and, you know, people want to buy things and are confused or, you know, all the stress that a convention can bring. So I definitely think having a booth manager was one of the best things I did um, last year um, because, uh, well, um, his name was just Justin and he just took care of everything, like even to the lead up to the convention, like he was training all the people that were working in the booth, making their schedules, making sure that they knew things, making sure they had the right games, um, all of that, because it's not like the world stops and like you don't have emails for the weeks before a convention starts. You know, you still have to deal with all of the like manufacturing and fulfillment that you were dealing with before. Um, You just have to, you know, also prepare for the convention, go to it and, you know, do all the, the cleanup that happens afterward as well. Oh, yeah. It's nice to have somebody to help put all the stuff back in your car, to help unload your car, you know, all the things that have to be done before and after the convention. And then as a publisher, you might want to take meetings. You might want to go network and talk to other publishers, other people you want to work with. You might want to take pitches and have a you know time that designers can come talk to you and, and share their games. You might want to go play test some of your games. So it's nice to be able to leave the booth. Now, when it comes to convention help as far as somebody to run the booth and other people to maybe demo your games and things like that. Is it okay just to have volunteers or is that something that you also maybe want to pay an hourly wage? Like tell me about the compensation for these folks and and what makes the most sense. So it really depends on you and the um, people that you're working with. Um, For most of the people that I um, work with, I I use this company called Double Exposure. Um, If you haven't heard of it, they are a company that publishers can hire and they can help out with, you know, play testing, getting booth volunteers, getting, um, you know, uh, they can look at rules. They can like, uh, if I ever think anything could be racist, I give it to them and they have a focus group. Look at it. Like if I have a question, they probably have an answer to it. Um, and one of the big things is getting uh, booth helpers. Um, and so with double exposure, um, what you do for the booth helpers is you give them a certain number of games. Um, you pay for the hotel, um, their badge, and, you know, sometimes like more than that. Um, but it really depends on like how long they're working and if they're doing like a double shift or a single shift or like, a, I guess they say half shift or full shift. Um, now. Um, but yeah, like I really recommend double exposure. Um, if you're going to go to conventions like repeatedly and they can get you booth helpers that are very like that have worked before and are reliable because having booth helpers that, um, you just find can sometimes be, uh, less than helpful. Like if they don't show up or if they want to have like a, like I had one person that would come in and then immediately want to go on a lunch break and then like come back for 10 minutes and then want to go on another break and just, you know, making sure you have the people that, you know, are going to actually do what they say that they're going to do is so much better when you're in a stressful situation of a convention. Yeah, no doubt. I think the uh, IGA, the Indie Game Alliance, also has a service. I think you can have people that can help you find people as well. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's smart to find companies that will then help you, right? It's no different than if you're in some like big corporate setting and you hire a, an agency to help you find recruits to come in for different jobs. I mean, it just it just makes sense because it saves you a lot of time. And again, it saves bandwidth. It saves effort uh, to, to kind of spread out like that. What are some of the other things that you find yourself hiring out? 
Uh, so, like, uh, well, um, talking about double exposure, another thing that they do are these splash events um, where um, we figure out when the game is going to get into distribution and when it should be in stores. And they get their, you know, heralds um, is what they're called um, to play the game, like, um, for Fire in the Library on one Saturday, they were playing it in, like, 65 different game stores across the U.S. Um and that's not something I could handle to do myself. If, even if I wanted to, that would be like way too hard for me to organize. Um, so they like make these events where they really like show your games to people. They teach them to everyone. And hopefully they, they get like that first month when you're in stores to be really great. Um, they also work with distribution um, to make sure that the stores will have the games um, because sometimes like, um, so I work with a consolidator. The consolidator sells the games to distribution. Distribution sells it to retailers, and then retailers sell it to um, uh, customers. Um, but distribution has to know when they have to order it, and so uh, Double Exposure works with them too to um, just make sure that the retailers can actually order it um, at the right times. Gotcha. What about like rulebook writing? rulebook editing, anything that's kind of like the technical side of things. That's something that I found personally. It's just, I don't mind it. Like I can do it. I've got a background in writing and a degree in writing, but it's just not particularly enjoyable. And so I find myself more and more hiring that kind of stuff out. What has been your experience there? Um, so I get a lot of people to help with the rule. It's like, um, if you've ever like seen me complain about it on social media, like I edit the rules, like literally over a hundred times for each of my rule books. And I hate it. I hate it so much, but I, just keep doing it because I want them to be perfect, even though rule books will never be perfect. Um, so getting people um, to help out with like so many aspects of that is really important. Um, first off, um, getting editors, like, and I say editors as in multiple editors. Um, I try to get like at least two or three per rule book um, now just to, you know, even if it's just paying somebody to verify that I know what words mean, um, but getting somebody like in the early start of the process, like before you go to Kickstarter and then getting somebody afterwards and then getting some like a new person to look at the final batch of rules, just because rules are so different. Like um, me reading the rules that I've edited like a hundred times, like I know how to play the game. But getting a brand new editor to look at the rules and make sure that they make sense for the final version um, and like actually having them be new and haven't seen them before. Like, I think that is so important. Um, but also just proofreading. Like I usually get a lot of people just to proofread the rules, um, just periodically, um, throughout the process, um, where I just send the rules out and I might have a form that's attached, or I might just ask them to like point out anything that is weird or they don't understand or needs better picture or whatever just getting feedback on the rules um but another part of um like all of this it's kind of i guess associated with the rules is uh print and play testing um where um you get somebody else to actually like print out the game with the rules and play test um and usually what i do for that is if they like play the game a certain number of times, they fill out like the form a certain number of times, um, then they get a copy of the game. Um, and that is completely worth it because, you know, getting making sure that your game can be fully understood and enjoyed by somebody without you there um, is just fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is something I've found to be super helpful, and, and that is sending out the print-and-play files to Kickstarter backers before I send the files to be manufactured at the at the printer uh, and, and go, you know, actually put it into print. And because no matter how many times I proofread something, no matter how many times I have other people look at it, it doesn't matter. There's something wrong. There's a mistake. There's a comma in the wrong place. There's a misspelled word. There's an ability that doesn't quite make sense. And so by sending the files out first, invariably, somebody's going to find a mistake that's then is going to save me from having to write up an FAQ later, or it's going to save me from having to send out cards that were misprinted or something like that. Um, and so I found huge success in, in reaching out to backers and saying, Hey, here's the, the final rule book. Hey, here are the print and play files. Let me know if you see anything wrong. And also the, the people that are really excited about the game, 
hopefully they're going to take the print and play files. They're going to print it out, cut it out, play the game, post it on social media. And I might even get a few late backers before the game goes to print. And so I think doing that, it just makes a whole lot of sense uh, as far as like the files and, and putting them out there to, uh, to your backers early. Yeah, well, I definitely agree with that. And I even go as far as like uh, when I put out the rules and stuff for the backers to look at, um, I list all the proofreaders in there. So it's an extra like, oh, yeah, if you look at these rules, you'll get your name in a rule book. And, you know, that's enough for some people. Like, I don't know. It's just nice seeing your name. And um, it's really easy. And like, I mean, all it costs me is actually like writing the name in the rule book. And usually there's, you know some amount of space left over that you can use. Yeah, no doubt. All right, switching gears just a little bit. Let's talk about maybe shipping, fulfillment, logistics, all of the stuff that goes into actually getting a game to a person's table. What are some things that you've found success as far as outsourcing there? Well, uh, I always use pledge managers. Um, And why I bring up pledge managers for this is because the pledge managers um, will typically have a way to output the files. And if you can output the files in the exact way that it's needed for the fulfillment centers that you're going to use, it just goes so much faster. Like I used to actually do all the data editing um, and making sure like that it was in the right format um, to go to people. And that can take hours and you can also make mistakes. So um, getting a good pledge manager that outputs the, um, the spreadsheets in the right format is uh, worth the the cost of it. Um, But also like just getting a fulfillment center. Like um, I do um, some things uh, manually, like I'll put barcodes on things and save money that way um, before sending to the fulfillment centers, depending on, you know, how much money I can save. But having somebody else actually ship out the games and put them in boxes and do all that is actually cheaper than me doing it just because, um, you know, these fulfillment companies, they get so many um, like discounts on boxes and everything that, you know, it's like if I wanted to do more work, I could, but it would cost more money. So why would I? Um, it just makes everything so much easier to not um, personally fulfill uh, games. Oh, yeah. Unless you want to have a crazy number of games and components just sitting in your basement or your garage. Definitely makes sense to outsource that. Now, if you do a campaign and you sell 200 copies, okay, you know, you might want to do that yourself. You might be able to save a little bit of money. But as soon as you start scaling up and having a bunch of games and you got to think of, okay, how am I going to sell these games going forward? And do I want to deal with this or do I want it just to kind of be automated? And when somebody buys a game, the fulfillment company knows it and they send it out to them. and I don't ever even have to touch it. I just think it makes a lot of sense to think through these things long term. And this is, again, something that I found that I could do as far as like the shipping and logistics and fulfillment and talking to fulfillment centers and figuring out the rates and all this stuff. I could do it. Man, I hate it. It's just (laughs) not enjoyable. All these numbers and spreadsheets and figuring this stuff out and like, oh, my gosh. And so this is something I personally hired out and found someone who enjoys it and does a great job. And what they do in an hour would have taken me three hours. And so there's also that to think about. It's like just because you can doesn't mean it's a good idea. And you might save some money. But again, time, bandwidth effort and things to uh to think about there well and uh, another thing um you mentioned like uh um it like getting a certain number like but even now like i have my fulfillment center send out like um the games that i just sell like if i sell one of them i have them sell it uh, or send it out because it's cheaper for them to on the shipping and everything even if i'm just sending out one game um and so like with all the savings of well Um, like I do have to pay like a warehousing fee, but does the warehousing fee like cover the fact that I don't actually have to go find tape or have boxes in my house or like actually go and like weigh things and do all the things that's required when you're sending out packages. Like that takes so much time and effort and, you know, paying like $10 a month on warehousing just to have it so you can send things out in minutes instead of, you know, hours. Um, that is worth it a lot. So uh, even if it's like, even if you only have to send out like 10 packages, it might be worth it to get somebody else to do it. Oh yeah. Completely agree. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Still talking about publishing though. And that's signing games created by other designers. I think a lot of people start off 
when they have a publishing company and it's because they want their own personal games to come to life and they have you know a, an art direction they have in mind that like they they want to do it themselves and for all sorts of different reasons but then you kind of get to a point and you realize okay I'm only able to design so many games in a year and it ain't that many like it's you know just a few if they're going to be any good unless I'm making a whole bunch of you know tiny games that are super light and whatever but if I'm going to design medium weight you know bigger games uh, I can I can only do so many in a year unless you're Scott Alms because he is a robot and he can do like 47 in a year, but he is an outlier. But in general, you, you're probably only going to be able to do so many. And so tell me your mentality as far as like when you decided to kind of switch gears and start signing games by other designers and what that did for your company, you know, outsourcing that. Tell me about it. So um, the first two games I designed that I published, um, but after that I was looking into, you know, what happens next. Um, and at that time, um, what I was told is that you either need to have like a really good Kickstarter or you need to have a, like five games. Like um, distributors want to know that you're actually going to, you know, be around and they want to ha- know like the, the relationship they have with you isn't just like a one off and it's just one game that will not be around in a year. Um, so that's why I started signing games just to expedite the process so I could um, get into distribution. Um, and that's what I did. I started working with designers um, so that I could get the games and develop them much faster than I could on my own. And at this point, I am in distribution, so I've started to um, publish some of my own games again. Um, and I'm probably going to like a half and half situation um, at this point, just because I do really love design. Um, but I also have lots of friends in the industry, and I like working with them as well. Um, and just having it so that, um, well, especially like during the Kickstarter where I can be like, hey, designer, you have to go do 30 interviews and I don't have to. Like all of that marketing, um, it makes it like signing a game so worth it um, just to be able to tell somebody else to help out with that. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not only the design and the playtesting, it's also all the other stuff that goes along with bringing a game to life. And what I found is I can also outsource some of the art direction, some of the ideas, because typically somebody pitches a game and they love this project. Like it's something that they really believe in and they are more than happy to help out when, when if you say, hey, you know, here's some ideas I've got as far as like art or graphic design and just kind of to have that person to go back and forth and get their ideas as well has been super helpful in my, my experience. Uh, and it's something that they actually love being a part of. They enjoy being part of this full process. Now, that's not everybody and doesn't work, you know, for all relationships, but that's something I, that I have really uh, enjoyed. With the signing of the game, you really have to make sure like as a publisher that you talk to the designer beforehand and get to know like how much they think that they're going to be involved. Um, because some designers just want to hand off the game and be done with it then and don't want to like play test or help with marketing or any of that. And other designers want to be a part of all of it. Um, like they, they need to be part of like the graphic design conversations and all these conversations that you might not want them to be a part of. Um, so that's definitely something to think of because I've had some uh, like signing relationships be a lot more effort than they were really worth just because the um, we did not agree on like the direction of the game or something happened. And yeah, like it can go in a lot of different ways, but if you make sure to talk about it first and be really open with the amount that you want the designer to pitch in and as a designer you say like how much you're willing to change what you can put up with like if you will only do 30 interviews just say that and that's that'll be fine um but making sure like all these conversations are open and honest because i've had some things or like designer relationships where it's turned into like a me like spending a lot of time with a designer that i did not intend to spend with them just making sure that they were you know happy and not freaking out about you know everything because you know some designers do take uh you know they're they're really emotional about their baby design and you know yeah that's an excellent point and as far as like just establishing expectations going in hey i might ask you for ideas i might ask you to play test more i might ask you to help with it and just 
establishing that as much as you can, obviously you're going to run into challenges no matter what, because we're humans and we struggle to deal with each other sometimes, especially through email, right? Where you don't know someone's tone or what they're really trying to say or whatever. So yeah, it's an excellent point. Well, let's, uh, as we kind of get ready to close things out, let's talk about maybe one of my favorite topics. I think something that is definitely involved in this particular conversation, and that is the art of saying no. And so what has been your experience in learning and figuring out what to say no to, how to say no, how to know when it's it's better to say no, which projects say yes to, what's been your experience? Okay, well, with working with people, I wish everyone knew how to say no or knew how to say their opinion because most of the people I've worked with are like the people pleaser types and they just tell me what I want to hear and what I want to hear is actually like they don't know what I want to hear. I want to hear like um, how the best way to work with them is like, um, for instance, if I say like I've stopped asking people like, hey, do you communicate well on Discord? Um, because everyone says yes and then not everyone communicates well on Discord. Um, so we end up having to like figure out what their um, method of choice is on, you know, communication, whether it's email or messenger or voice or video or whatever. So um, finding people that know how to say no and know how to say, you know, exactly how they work best is fantastic. Um, And knowing when to say no to them is also important. Like going back to um, that, like knowing when like you've hired somebody and you both agreed on what they would do. And then weeks later, that thing that you wanted done is actually not done. Um, being able to like explain what you wanted and what they're not doing while also being like a nice human is very hard. Um, but you need to do it. Otherwise you're just going to keep paying somebody to do something you don't want them to do. Um, or like you'll get into a situation where you like just fire them and you never actually talk to them about the thing. Um, so they didn't know that they were doing anything wrong. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And as far as saying no, this was so pivotal for me because I, I was one of those people like, oh, I want to do all the things and I'll just sleep less and I'll just be around people less and I'll just not exercise and I'll just do all the things. And that is not a very good way to live long term. It doesn't work long term. Let me let me tell you, just trust me. If you're thinking about it, don't do it because it's not going to work out for you. And I had to learn basically to identify not the projects I was excited about, because I'm excited about lots of things. I had to identify as a publishing company which projects were actually going to be worth pursuing, which of them were going to be you know, valuable in the marketplace that people actually wanted to buy, not just that I wanted to work with. You know, Finding that intersection of, I'm excited about this, this is a cool idea, this is interesting, and people are going to buy it. Like Finding that intersecting place, which is not always easy. Um, I had to figure that out and, and learn what to say no to. But then also just saying no to really good opportunities even though they could be really cool and they could be fun because I need to focus. I need to get this other project done. This is what I really need to be working on. I don't need to take on another thing right now, even if it is cool, you know, to, to realize there's no really, honestly, not a such thing as like once in a lifetime opportunities. There's very few of those, honestly. And so to not think in those terms of realizing, no, it's going to be fine because to say no to something means that you're available to say yes to other things and understanding that when you say yes to something, you're actually saying no to a lot of other things. And so understanding that it's it's not perfect, you know? And so that was something that was super helpful um, for me. And, and I don't know if you've had any experience like that. I definitely want to talk about your cats game though real quick. And so what were, what were some of those things that maybe to use that as a case study, right? So you've been doing design, doing publishing for a while now. As far as this new game coming out, it's up on Kickstarter uh, as we speak right now and the campaign's live. Um, tell me about that game. Tell me about some things you've been learning that you've been applying to this new campaign that you've kind of figured out over the years, maybe as far as like saying no to things or figuring out how to hire out different work or things like that. Tell me about your, your current game kind of as a, like an anecdote to learn a little bit deeper. So um, this is uh, my first design um, that I'm actually publishing uh, for like five years or so. Um, the last game was um, for Weird Draft Games with Stellar Leap. Um, so I learned when to actually like prioritize my own designs. Um, but uh, the art for this um, actually took a really long time. Um, I'm still learning how to work with artists because this was originally scheduled to be published in January of 2021. Um, but the artwork 
was just not done. Um, I had to learn, you know, just how to ask for like updates, um, when to bother people or like, it's not really bothering, but like asking for, for check-ins and stuff. So I got a lot better at, you know, like, um, I put in a thing in Todoist where it's like, check on the art for this game every week. And it gives me a reminder every week to check in on the art. So then I go do that. Like, regardless of whether I talk to that person like a day or so before, it just keeps me like on it and keeps things moving. Um, so that was definitely, um, a part of it. Um, but one really cool thing that I learned about this game, um, was the fact that, um, going to, uh, like conventions, like conventions are great, but going to actual like uh, design retreats um, can make things go really, really fast. Um, this game was actually designed at a design retreat um, where I stayed for a week in Maine. And I iterated on this, you know, every day for a week. And that's basically the game that is what backers are going to get. Like there was a a number of tweaks and stuff made but like um like just it wasn't the i like all the iconography wasn't there um like some of the numbers were changed but the basics of all the mechanics were made in that week that i was at a design retreat so um i really recommend those uh for you know expediting like designs and getting like something done super fast and figuring out what the design actually is um, because this went from a um, I split you choose game to a, a different kind of drafting game and then to a Winston draft and then to open Winston draft um, just because I needed to find out what the correct way to get all the cats and kittens and everything out was um, and being able to play test repeatedly with different people um, that all liked games and all had different ideas uh, made that happen so fast. Very cool. And yeah, I think that's, it's excellent just to find ways that you can focus, you know, just having that time of focus, be able to put all your attention, all your efforts onto something. It can dramatically increase the speed at which you can uh, get things done. So that's excellent. Well, Carla, this has been great. Closing thoughts. What would you want to leave people with as far as multiplying your time, multiplying your efforts, multiplying yourself? What, what would you tell them? Don't be scared to reach out for help and don't ever uh, think that something is going to be an easy fix. Um, Keep your expectations, you know, manageable um, so you don't like just crash down when uh, somebody doesn't do all the things exactly as you would. Um, one of the things I like to do is just really focus on the fact that I don't have to do the thing that somebody else is doing instead of focusing on the fact that they're not doing it as I would. Um, just really get down to be like, okay, well, I don't have to check the Instagram or I don't have to respond to all these things. And I'm really grateful and appreciative of that. And make sure to tell everyone you work with, you know, all these thoughts that you have whenever you are appreciative of it, because if you ever take anyone for granted, you might then have to be the one that does the social media when they quit. Um, so yeah, keeping people happy and you know healthy and not expecting too much of them means that you might never have to do the social media again which is fantastic or whatever part of publishing it is that you don't want to be doing so uh keep your expectations uh down but you know be really happy and work with great people and be willing to like try to find uh different people when you can like i hired I think three or four marketing managers before I settled on one. Um, but now I'm really happy. Um, so you can find the person that will fit the job and the company and, you know, whatever you're paying them if you look hard enough. Um, well, and if you have uh, low enough expectations, I guess. If you think that somebody is going to do, you know, all the social media and marketing for your company for free, um, you know, and they're going to be great at it, that's probably wrong you're not going to find that person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Carla, we were just talking about your cast game. It's on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that. So way too many cats. It's a game for one to six players um, that plays in about 45 minutes where you are um, taking care of cats in an adoption center. You want all the cats to be super happy. So they get um, adopted. 
and you are drafting cats and kittens. Um, the cats have um, a spatial puzzle aspect to them where they like to be in certain places or next to certain other cats. And each cat like has a different color. Like um, the black cats like to be around um, all different colors of cats. The orange cats like to be next to white cats, um, things like that. And then there's also the kittens. Um, for the kittens, if you can get them into sets of like four of the same kind or seven, uh, a full set of seven, you can get a lot of points. But otherwise, the kittens will just be a disaster and take away points. So, uh, yeah, you want to be able to draft uh, the right cats and kittens that will all live together happily um, so you can get them all adopted before they just ransack the place. Awesome. That's on Kickstarter right now. Carla, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with way too many cats and uh, everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?